Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, November 23rd. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We speak with Mercedes about what Canadians can expect from Governor General Marie Simon's first throne speech and the top priorities ahead for the Liberal minority government with the 44th sitting of Parliament kicking off this week. Next, we look at the continuing opioid crisis in North America and the impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on cases over the past 20 months or so. We get the latest stats from a professor of pain medicine at Johns Hopkins University. People are ready to travel. Flights are full, borders are open, but could finding travel insurance get in the way of your travel plans? We catch up with the travel lady, Leslie Cater, for what you need to know before you book your trip. And finally, how can parents help their children develop a healthy relationship with food and nutrition? We speak with a postdoctorate fellow from the University of Alberta School of Public Health who shares some tips on how parents can instill a positive body image in their children starting at a young age. The 44th Parliament has just resumed and Liberals say they've got a lot of work to get to and won't tolerate any tricks to slow the agenda. So what exactly do they want to get past this session? We are checking in with Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson, to find out. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, how are you guys? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. We love it when you come and join us after a good session of the West Block. And <laughs> what did you find out this week in terms of uh, what the Liberals are planning and uh, you know what their their big agenda? I guess the big topics to focus on are. Well, we certainly found out um, as far as it went on the show about climate change, which we expect to be uh, a really big factor in here. We may see some stuff about disaster preparedness. Outside of that, we're also hearing things um, like they're looking to get uh, particular bills passed or reintroduced, including one that would see paid sick leave by Christmas time. Uh, but I think the big overarching things that you're likely to see in the speech um, are things about uh, relationship with Canada's Indigenous people climate change, um, moving forward with some of the social programs that they've talked about as priorities, um, also looking to do things like to put in special laws, a specific law that would prevent people from protesting around hospitals. Um, so those are all the things we could see today. Another one I would keep a, uh, an eye on, just uh, my personal opinion, we now have a minister for mental health. So I would bet that there could be something significant on mental health as well um, in this particular throne speech as it comes down. And this will have been something, by the way, they've been talking about figuring out what their priorities are, but also to a certain degree talking to opposition parties, because at the end of the day, we are in another minority parliament, and that means they do have to work mm. with the, mm-hmm. the dreaded competition on all of this to get it passed. Also going to be an historic throne speech in the sense that we've all uh, seen Governor General Mary Simon, new Governor General Mary Simon. Uh, but really, uh, you know, this is going to be really, I, I believe, her first official act uh, up front and center to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, this is really our first chance to see um, beyond the Governor General's installation, mm-hmm. uh, her performing the 
the really important part of the role where she reads out the speech to the throne. And um, it's very uh, pomp and circumstance. It reminds you sort of how far this tradition goes back. Um, and of course, Mary Simon is our first Indigenous Governor General in Canada. So really significant when we are talking about things like reconciliation and the programs. And for the first time, you have an Indigenous person actually reading this speech. Mm-hmm. It, it just drives it home. Um, so this should be unique. And um, our first chance to sort of see our Governor General in action. Mercedes, you had the chance to speak with Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole on the West Block this past weekend. What do we know now about the vaccination status of his MPs? And I guess you couldn't even call them whispers. They're uh, quite loud shouts now from some that he's just not the guy to continue leading that party. So on the vaccination side, he says everybody either has their vaccination or has a medical exemption. The Liberals are raising doubts about those medical exemptions, saying that they don't think there could be that many. We don't actually know how many medical exemptions the Liberals say they have, pardon me, the Conservatives say they have, uh, but they have to go through the House of Commons. That would be who have to verify, uh, does it look legitimate, all those kinds of questions. But it was a bit of a surprise because a lot of people thought significant numbers in that caucus would not be vaccinated and therefore would not be able to actually show up to work. But they were pretty much all there, um, with the exceptions of a few folks who had very specific reasons for being away, like being from the areas in B.C. um, that are are under extraordinary pressure right now with the natural disasters taking place out there. Um, There's still questions about, you know, how many exemptions there are and are they legitimate? But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the House of Commons who will be the arbiter um, of who can come in and who can't. But that, I think, sort of took the wind out of the sails a bit of the Liberals, who thought it was going to be a big thing to attack the Tories and on how many people couldn't be there to vote because they have not been vaccinated. And right now, you do have to be vaccinated um, to go to Parliament in person. On the leadership front, there was certainly a, um, a vocal portion of the party and of Aaron O'Toole's own caucus who are unhappy with him and who want him out. And you saw it most evidently with Senator Denise Batters, who is a senator from Saskatchewan, who actually made a video and put it online saying that there should be a review of his leadership because um, they did not believe he performed up to par during election. Um, Of course, remember last week, Aaron O'Toole kicked her out of caucus, taking a hard line. He made it clear that any member of parliament would be kicked out too. And just for your listeners, um, it is far easier to kick out a senator than a member of parliament because senators, the leader can make the decision. For a member of parliament, you actually have to have numbers, uh, a significant number of other MPs who agree to kick them out of the party in order to get them out of caucus. The conservatives have that higher bar because they've been elected by the people. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see now, you know, kind of does this settle things down? They've gotten through vaccination. They've gotten through this. Uh, Aaron O'Toole has said no to an early leadership review, um, but will this sort of continue to dog him as he deals with MPs who who feel he flip-flopped during the election um, and who don't feel that he's the person who should be leading the party? And at the end of the day, frankly, um, disagree with with other groups of MPs about whether the party should be moving to the centre to try to get more votes Mm -hmm. in Ontario or stay where it has been in the past on the right. Well, and you, you would think to a certain extent, you know, if he's, he still has the reins, it's business as usual. But Mercedes, as we do know, the clock was reset when the Liberals won their third minority government. And and here we are. Could be, what is it, statistically 18 to 24 months? Do, does the Conservative Party wait a year or do they look to, to change things up? It's got to be an interesting conversation behind closed doors. 
Yeah, and it's a big debate because there's folks who say if we're unhappy with the leader, let's change him now. There's other folks who say um, 18 to 24 months is not as far as you think. Part of the problem, even with a year, was that Aaron O'Toole didn't have enough time to meet with Canadians. Now is not the time to be doing this and drawing all these negative headlines to ourselves. Um, you know, and there's there's the challenge, too, over the, the whole direction of the party. Even if you change the leader, it's very clear that the party is in a very deep state of not just reflection, but active debate over what kind of a party they want to be. Um, and I think there was a feeling from a lot of the people who supported Andrew Scheer that he didn't get a fair shake because he was out after one election. Well, unsurprisingly, the Aaron O'Toole people felt the same way. They want him in for more than one election uh, to see if he could win. And the O'Toole people will tell you that they don't think they performed as well as they could have in the election, uh, but that they don't regret their approach, really. That they think that was the right approach and that, well, they may not have done better than they did in the 2019 election, they stopped what they thought was going to be a Justin Trudeau uh, majority. Um, and so they're they're trying to argue that's a victory, even though at the end of the day, it was not a victory that won an election. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where the party is at at this point. But I think that uh, there is a sense of frustration from everyone in the party right now that they're sick of us talking about them <laughs> instead of the government. <laughs> and the only way to stop that is to either, you know, have the leadership review and get it over with or stop the backstabbing. Yeah, well, we have that that same situation here in Alberta, don't we? Thank you, Mercedes. Appreciate you joining us this morning, as always. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a great day. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Well, since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, opioid toxicity deaths have increased by 88% compared to the pre-pandemic levels. To help us understand why this is happening, we are joined by Dr. Paul Christo, Associate Professor in the Division of Pain Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Good morning to you, Dr. Christo. Good morning. Well, we've got this data before the pandemic, and uh, now that we're in it and moving deeper through it, why have we seen an increase in opioid-related deaths during the pandemic? Well, you know, gosh, it's just it's just terrible, really. Uh, I mean, there were over 70,000 overdose deaths uh, in 2019, over 90,000 in 2020, and now, you know, we're, we're exceeding 100,000 overdose deaths. Uh, you know, over half of these overdose deaths, and that's a broad term, are due to opioids, and specifically an opioid called fentanyl, synthetic fentanyl. And this drug, you know, this opioid, is about 80 to 100 times more potent than morphine. So if you're ingesting it, if you're using it intravenously or intranasally, it can lead to death within minutes by suppressing our ability to breathe. So, Doctor, what is it about the pandemic that has increased the numbers of deaths? Is it that we've, you know, been talking so much about, you know, stay home by yourself, you know, don't interact with other people? Is that what's happening for, you know, people who are getting into trouble with drugs as well? They're on their own and, and something like fentanyl is, I mean, if you're not treated immediately, there's little help, right? That's right. I think there are two things that occurred during the pandemic. One, we had a lot of economic hardships. So there were a lot of people who were out of work or underemployed. That's certainly a stressor. And then there was a lot of emotional hardship. I mean, that is, we had a lot of people that were seeing family members, friends hospitalized in the ICU and die. So you had these two forces that I think have led a lot of people to uh, basically go to the recreational use of drugs, specifically fentanyl and even methamphetamine. So we're seeing a rise in psychostimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine as well. You know, it's interesting when we started to hear more and more about the opioid crisis a handful of years ago. I remember they started to roll out those 
uh, naloxone kits. And, uh, you know, to me, that's the, the, the term I hear time and time again. Do we have any other tools in the arsenal? And, and just how important is that naloxone kit in the battle? Naloxone is key. Naloxone, also known as Narcan, is an opioid reversal agent. So, uh, you know, here in the United States, you can, it often requires a prescription, but not necessarily in all states. In some states, the pharmacist can dispense it without a prescription. Important for family and friends uh, and for people who are using drugs to have it, clearly, uh, because all you have to do, it comes in different forms, but the one that typically is used in public health uh, realms is the intranasal form. So someone would basically spritz it into the nostrils in someone who's overdosing on an opioid, and it reverses the respiratory depression effects and saves lives, no question about it. I think there needs to be greater availability, though, of that drug and greater awareness that it exists. Doctor, this is a huge question, but, you know, with the addiction numbers on the increase, with a readily available supply just about anywhere and everywhere, what steps do we need to take to try and combat this opioid crisis? Well, one, I think, frankly, we need to better support law enforcement to crack down on those that are selling these drugs illegally. Two, I think we need to target adolescents. These are, you know, kids between the ages of 13 to 25. Uh, Let them know what's going on, what the risks are of using a drug like synthetic fentanyl. Because, you know, 85% of addictions occur before the age of 35. So we need to target those people that are at risk at a younger age. And three, I think we need certainly an expansion of addiction medicine services. You know, we have addiction treatment centers, but we don't have enough of them, and they're pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, Doctor, I'm wondering if we can take lessons from previous, you know, issues when it comes to drug use in our, in our society, or is o- the opioid issue a, a different animal and has to be treated differently than other addictions that we've seen in society? I think it's similar. I, I think it's similar to other addictions. I mean, you know, this what we're seeing now is a rise in opioids but you know certainly we've also seen a rise as i mentioned earlier in methamphetamine use also in alcohol and tobacco so it's not you know addiction basically occurs when you take a drug with rewarding properties and introduce it to a vulnerable person at a vulnerable time in life and that's what we you know we saw huge vulnerability during COVID 19 and it's we're seeing it now but not to the same extent Doctor, I mean, we likely will never see, you know, illegal drugs going away entirely, but we're starting to see, it seems, an uptick, too, of, you know, maybe even being able to buy them online, but things that are cut with horrible things that are are not anything you should ever put in your body. So how do we kind of combat that idea of, 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 of a drug addiction as well? Well, I think we need uh, certainly addiction treatment services. We need greater support mechanisms uh, to combat what we're seeing here. I mean, you know, we need, so in the United States, for example, we have uh, the American Psychological Association that has a very uh, helpful online resource that people can go to that will link them to mental health professionals, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists. And and that's really been quite helpful. And uh, one of the positive consequences of the pandemic, because prior to the pandemic, we really didn't have these resources to the same extent that we do now. Also, telemental health services are on the rise. Mm-hmm. Again, a positive consequence of the pandemic. Uh, this also is very helpful in terms of linking people at risk with you know, their family physician, with mental health professionals.
I'm wondering, you know, when we talk, you're based at the, you're out of Johns Hopkins University and, you know, here in Canada, a huge crisis. Are, are we seeing uh, similar issues in other parts of the world or is this a North America centric or are we leading the charge here? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, we, we sort of are leading the charge. It's not happening to the, to the same extent in other countries uh, that it, as it is in, in North America. You know, the other thing that is happening, is, we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, we're talking about overdose epidemic. But, you know, what, the other epidemic that we've seen over many years that isn't discussed as much is the chronic pain epidemic. And that often, but not always, can underlie the use and abuse of opioids. And that's something else that we need to better treat and address. Ongoing discussion, and we need to talk about it now. Things are getting pretty dire. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning, Doctor. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Paul Christo, Associate Professor in the Division of Pain Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. People are traveling, and a lot more than they were, boy, a year or so ago. Well, the travel lady, <laughs> Leslie Cater, has been doing the homework for us. She calls it homework. We say <laughs> it's pretty sweet. But she has just returned from a trip to Europe with some details about flights and insurance and joins us now. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Sue. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start with some insurance. So you did your homework. You had a lovely right. trip to Europe. What, what, yes. what, what's the information we need to know now? Have, has things changed a bit? They have changed a bit, and in fact, only when I got back from Europe, I heard this announcement by Manulife Insurance, who are big travel insurance coverers, that they have updated their, what they call their COVID pandemic travel plan. And the most astonishing and wonderful thing about this is that they are now covering cruise ship travel. Even though it's a level four advisory, do not avoid all cruise travel, you can now get insurance on this up to $5 million to mm-hmm. cover you for any medical related to COVID or other instances, plus quarantine benefits. And that's been a big thing for people just saying, you know, I, I want to cruise, but what happens if I get stuck there? Um, who's going to pay for the hotel, etc." So, So this is a great step forward. Now, I, I must note, though, that this cruise travel insurance is only for vaccinated people mm. because for the most part, unvaccinated people can't go on a cruise anyway. Right. It's a new type yeah. of insurance. Like we haven't had to worry about this so much and it was uh, seemed not, not, not come out of nowhere, but it's new. I'm wondering, is, yes. it, is it very pricey? You mm-hmm. see $5 million worth of coverage. What are we going to be paying for something like this? It, it's all going to depend on the amount of the trip that you're covering, your penalties, your age, the length of time you're away. So uh, it's got to be worked out each time. But I've found that, you know, I always take insurance. I never travel without it. Sometimes it works out a bit expensive, but it always gives me peace of mind. But it's not just for cruise ship travel either. They've also ramped up their policy for land travel. So fully vaccinated travelers going on a land trip can get coverage up to $5 million. And if you're not vaccinated, you can even get coverage for a land trip just up to a million. If you're, so, if you're not vaccinated, you're not, can you go to many places right now, Leslie, even no, by you land? Can go down, you can go down to Mexico. You can go a couple of places in the Caribbean. Uh, so it's there's still places open that will accept people without a vaccination. Seems to be getting less as we go through this crisis. Um, but there we have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so also the cruise lines have been so proactive in all of this, and they've been the hardest hit. 
So um, they're coming out with their own insurance coverage. For example, Celebrity has got their safe passage home. And for any sailing that departs before April 30th next year, free, you get your um, medical coverage, you get 100% cruise fare refund to you if you test positive 14 days before your cruise. Because that was a big thing. Like, I booked this and I paid it in full, but what happens if I get COVID? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you get COVID on the ship, they will take care of all the medical costs, any required land-based quarantine and homebound travel for you and your oh, wow. whoever's in your stateroom. And get this, if you're sick, they will have a six-seater medical jet to take you home. Wow. And it doesn't cost anything. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it gives a lot of confidence to the cruisers out there and even some of those unvaccinated people who can still find a few places where they can travel to. You know, and it's a on pins and needles uh, time, as we all know at this point, Leslie. And what sticks with mm-hmm. me from what you said out of this whole conversation is that peace of mind uh, that you, you want to have when you're traveling and when you're on vacation. So we appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, no, my, my pleasure. Just be safe out there, everybody. If you travel, take insurance. Mm. There you go. Words <laughs> of wisdom. She knows. From the, yeah, from the travel lady herself. The travel lady, Leslie Cater. And, of course, you can find her online at thetravellady.ca. We know weight issues can certainly start at an early age, and there are many factors involved in that. Our next guest believes parents need to just stop talking to their kids about weight. Alexa Ferdinands is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Alberta School of Public Health. Good morning to you, Alexa. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Okay, so does talking about weight issues just kind of create more issues itself? Is it it kind of like looking at Instagram all the time and just seeing all these perfect bodies that aren't actual reality? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So one key piece of advice that came out of my research during my PhD was the fact that weight is a part of everyday conversation topics um, with children at home, but we really need to be getting that conversation out of the home. That's something to be discussed with healthcare professionals. But um, when children are bombarded with messaging around thin ideals and messages from their parents in the home environment to lose weight, that can lead to lasting health issues down the road. Within your research, Alexa, is there an age that we're talking about where this sort of a conversation can have an impact on a child? Um, Research has shown that even by the age of three, um, children are already starting to kind of um, internalize the thin ideal. So they're already showing, um, yeah, examples of weight stigma at really young ages. So preschool and up. Three, that's shocking. I guess it's it's just everywhere. And I think, you know, sometimes we just don't even really notice it, but subliminally it's getting in. So how can parents then help instill a positive relationship with food and nutrition without really making such a big deal out of it? So one of the key pieces is um, keeping in mind that parents are key role models for their children. So your children are going to be emulating your behaviors. Um, So one big thing is keeping fat talk out of um, everyday conversation. So fat talk is things like complimenting people about their weight, saying things like, you look great, have you lost weight? Um, This then leads children to think that their self-worth is dependent on their weight. Um, Another thing is um, not talking about your own weight or discussing your most recent diet with children at home. Um, And another one is keeping scales out of the bathroom. Um, As a society, we're just obsessed with weight monitoring, surveillance. We have a pretty unhealthy obsession with weight and quantifying it. Um, So kind of making the home a safe space where children aren't feeling like they're being monitored about their weight in in every space. 
Yeah, yeah, Alexa, we've covered a lot of ground when it comes to, you know, our conversations and our dealings with it. But if if you have a legitimate concern about your child's weight and, and their health, what is the best way to address it then? So the best thing would be to speak with a healthcare professional, whether that be your family physician, a dietitian, something like that. Um, that's something that's um, best discussed from adult to adult. And at this, if it's just something... Um, more of a minor concern, yeah, that would be something to discuss with them. And then a healthcare professional can then um, determine next best steps, whether that be actual um, pediatric, seeing a pediatrician for weight management. Should we have the conversation, though, with our kids about social media, about magazines, about television, that a lot of the time these people that we, we look to as normal are anything but? Absolutely. Yeah. Within social media, um, that was another thing that came in my research. I mean, we have Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, everything under the sun where thin thin people are the only ones that they see on social media. So it's really important for parents to have that conversation with children about the fact that the images that they're seeing online are not real. They're often being photoshopped. And um, yeah, that's definitely not the norm for most people. A very interesting conversation, and I think that anybody who's a parent out there, our ears perked up during the conversation. So thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.